Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we are going to begin a brand new study uh, through this wonderful book of the New Testament. Um, I'm just so uh, excited how many of you last Sunday took the opportunity to grab those scripture journals. If you didn't get one, um, you can get one this coming week. I will get them in on Monday. I ordered a couple more. Let me know if you want one. That way I can order more if I tended to order even still not enough. So I didn't actually think we would get rid of all 12 that I ordered, but we managed to. And then we've ordered some more, and I know that, that a few of those are spoken for. So if you want a scripture journal, please reach out to me and let me know about that. But we'll be in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9, to begin our series uh, tonight. How many of you would agree that there is no such thing as a perfect church? There is no such thing as a perfect church. Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous preacher of yesteryear in England, he talked about how foolish it is to expect there to be a perfect church when he said this. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. In the moment I did join it, if I'd found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. But I like the last part. He said, still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. You know, every church has strengths and weaknesses, and our church is no exception to that. And here's what our temptation will be as Christians when we think about the weaknesses or the strengths of a church. One temptation is that we will be tempted to despair or to become frustrated because of the weaknesses that we see in our church. I would imagine that I'm not the only person who knows of weaknesses in our particular church. If you are not aware of any weaknesses, I'm sure you will someday be disappointed that our church does have weaknesses. And so the temptation could be for us to despair about that and be frustrated about that or be angry about that. The other temptation is for us to be arrogant or maybe delusional, because all we see are the strengths of our church. We could be frustrated because we see everything that's wrong, or we could be arrogant because we only see what's right. And I think that dynamic really summarizes what's going on in 1 Corinthians 1 in Paul's greeting to the church at Corinth. On the Corinth side of things, as you'll begin to read this letter, and hopefully you have already, you'll begin to see that the church at Corinth had a very big flaw. They thought of themselves as more spiritual than they were. Chapter number three, Paul says that I would, would have wished to have write unto you as mature Christians, but I had to address you as babes in Christ. And so when they looked at themselves, they saw only the strengths, and frankly, they took too much credit for the strengths they had. But as we begin to study what Paul is going to see in this church and the weaknesses he's going to address, you can imagine that the Apostle Paul, if as a fallen man, his temptation would have been to be completely frustrated with all the problems in this church. Frankly, I think some of the sternest words in the New Testament are written in the books of First and Second. Corinthians. There are a lot of things wrong with this church. A lot. And by the way, 
lest we get too high-minded. Let us remember that even a church as imperfect as Corinth was still considered one of Christ's churches. And what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 1 through 9 is that even with all the problems, all of the frustrations that Paul could have had, Paul begins his letter dominating it with the melodic line of thankfulness for the church. Now that's strange, isn't it? Because that's the last thing I would have been if I was in Paul's shoes. I wouldn't have been thankful. And so the question we have to ask is, how could Paul give thanks for a really messed up church? (laughs) How could Paul look at this very imperfect church and see so many things to be thankful for? And here's the truth. That even imperfect churches can celebrate the ways Christ is working in their midst. If a church has evidence that there are believers in that church, then that means if there are believers, the Spirit of God is within those believers. And if the Spirit of God is within people, He is always working. And what we're going to see tonight as the dominant idea of this, these first nine verses is that everything that is worth celebrating in our church is a result of Christ's work. Paul could look at this imperfect church and he could celebrate with all of its problems because Christ was still working. And yet he could write this note at the beginning of the letter to subtly redirect the attention of the Corinthians off of themselves for their strengths and onto Christ because everything that was good in the church was a product of Christ and not Corinthians. Our passage tonight is gonna show us four ways Christ is working in every authentic church. It's gonna give you and me four reasons we can turn around and thank Christ for his work even in our imperfect church, Fellowship Baptist Church. Let's read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9 together. And notice how often Jesus shows up in these verses. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus, or by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
I told you I'd give you four ways Christ is working in our church. And here's the first one that we can be thankful for in 1 Corinthians verses 1 through 9 in chapter 1, that Christ has set us apart from the world. Christ has set us apart. We see this theme even in these verses of calling. Do you see that? Verse number 1, Paul is called to be an apostle. Verse number two, they are called to be saints. And then it ends that they were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And he says in verse number two, that Christ is calling his church apart from the world. We're called by God in salvation. We are sanctified. That's speaking of our salvation. We are sanctified in Christ. And Paul is reminding this church that they as a group are called out of the world. Notice how in verse number two, he doesn't call them the church of Corinth. He says the church of God. Because the reality is, is that the church was not supposed to reflect Corinth as much as it was supposed to reflect God. And he says that this church of God is called to be saints. That word saints is the noun form of the word holy, holy ones. You could... Literally say that he's calling us to be holy. We are made holy in Christ and we are called to be holy throughout our lives. We are called out of the world and we are called unto God. We are separated unto him. But what's interesting to me about verse number two is the emphasis on the community focus of this call. He doesn't say that Christ has called you as individuals to be saints. He says, no, Christ has called the whole church to be saints. But then Paul expands his focus even broader because look at verse number two. He says that you are called to be saints with another group of people. So here's the church. You are called as a church to be saints with, now look at verse two, all that in Every place, okay, we're not just talking about Corinth. All of them that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. And so here's what Paul is saying, that God is calling unto himself a global people. Church family, you and I share a community with everybody who names the name of Christ. It is not just about Fellowship Baptist Church in Garden City. God is calling a global people. And I wonder, church, if we properly recognize our place in the global community of God's people. I think notoriously independent Baptists have been really bad at this. The name itself gives it away, right? We are independent, which I like. We're not governed by some denominational hierarchy, But the reality is, church family, that we could be so proud of our independence, we can forget that we are called alongside of all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if they differ with us on some things that we think are really important. This ought to affect us in some way. And there ought to be some tangible representation in your life and in our church's life that we are not just an island to ourselves. We are part of the body of Christ in Garden City. Whatever churches preach the gospel and have believers who name the gospel, we are in community with them. And there are some things we can't cooperate on. We aren't ecumenical people. 
But there are some things we ought to cooperate with them on, especially in matters of holiness, especially in being marked apart as a people of God. Are we on the same page here? We are in community with everybody who names the name of Christ. So here is what Paul is saying. God has set us apart to be holy. But as we read the letter, we're going to find out that this holiness thing is not something the church of Corinth has done very good at. Notice how in the letter, naturally, the introduction of the letter brings up all the issues the letter is going to talk about. And I'm going to do that in my message tonight. Large sections of this letter show that the Corinthians better wanted to reflect the wisdom of this world in verse number 20 than the wisdom of Christ. They had forgotten in chapter number five and seven that the members of the church should reflect the holiness of God in their sexuality. And so God had to address that through Paul. Chapter number 11, the structure of the home and how that was being displayed in the church was totally out of whack. And again, once again, God had to set them apart in the way that they govern themselves as men and women in the church. And then chapter number 10, some of Paul's strongest language is he reminds them that they are set apart and therefore they should not eat in the temple of idols, thus defiling themselves and dining in the presence of demons rather than the presence of Christ. So the question is worth asking tonight. Does our church membership reflect a holiness that is set apart from the world? And really, you can't control your church, but you can control you and your family. So does your family and your life reflect that you are set apart from the world? Does your marriage reflect in the way that it's governed? that it is different from the world. Friend, if we live marriage according to God's design, it's gonna be very different. There's gonna be a lot of self-sacrifice that most couples are unwilling to do. There's gonna be order and structure that most couples think is a thing of the past. There's gonna be an intimacy and a prioritization of one another that is foreign in our day, in a day of plurality, in a day of open marriages. Do our attitudes reflect holiness? Does our sexuality reflect holiness? Does our words reflect holiness? And the letter's gonna describe that our church has a vested interest that this community of believers, the church of God in Garden City, reflects holiness unto the Lord. So much so that Paul makes one of the strongest cases for writing off certain members of the church who have failed to live a life that reflects anything Christian. Why? Because Christ has set us apart from the world. But here's the thankfulness aspect. That when you and I are calling ourselves or as believers exhorting one another to a life of holiness, or as your pastor, as I'm exhorting you to a life of holiness, we are not echoing a call of our own voice. We are actually calling one another to holiness, which is an echo of the call of the one who first called us. Verse number two says that it is Christ who echoes the call to holiness. 
And so as your pastor, I have the most wonderful confidence today that as I call you to holiness and preach on sin, I'm not doing that in my own voice. I'm merely reflecting the voice of the Savior who if he is indwelling you, he is calling you to holiness. And if you have the privilege and the chance to speak into the life of another believer in our church who is not reflecting that holiness, have this assurance that it's not just you who's talking to them, it's the Spirit of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, who has called all of us to be saints. And for that, we can be thankful. And it's on that point we can be assured that our church, though it is imperfect, though our holiness is not always on point, we can be assured that God is calling us because it's not just a pastor, it's not just members, it is Christ himself calling us to be set apart from the world. We can rejoice in that tonight. Here's the second way Christ is working in his church. Christ is empowering us to serve one another. Verses four through seven, talk about the gifts, the grace gifts that God has given them through Christ. What I think is funny about this is that Paul is celebrating in verses four through seven, the very thing that divided the church at its core. Three chapters are gonna be given to this issue of gifts and the church was all out of whack. First of all, they forgot that those gifts were given to them by God. They thought it was really all about them. And by the way, all of us have that tendency too. We give it really, we can really put our stake down. It's my ministry, it's my calling, it's my position, but we forget that really all of what we can do in the church is given to us by God. But yet Paul looks at this church with all of its foibles and all of its bickering about gifts and he is thankful for the way in which God has gifted them. Now, why would he say that? I mean, look at verse number seven. He, he's like saying, wow, you guys are really gifted. You're not lacking in any gifts. Now, Paul is rejoicing because, listen, spiritual gifts were a sign that the grace of God was at work in their life. You don't have spiritual gifts unless you're a spiritual person. When I mean spiritual, I mean saved. And so Paul looks at this, though it was the issue that they were dividing over, and he says, you know what? I'm just thankful that God has gifted you because that shows me God is working in your life, which shows me you're his people. And what's we, we, even weirder is that he celebrates the very two gifts that the church was the most proud of. These terms will show up later in the letter. He talks about the gifts of utterance, and of knowledge. Now, why does he pick those out? He's reminding them, verse number four, that the gifts they were most proud of were not a product of their personality, but they were a product of the grace of God. Church family, however God has gifted you to serve this body, remember, it isn't about you. It is all because of the grace of God you can do anything to serve his body. And we ought to rejoice in however God gifts people to serve his church. We have no right to be puffed up in pride if we can play or teach or sing or serve or give. That has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with Christ. All glory goes to Jesus. And though we are an imperfect church, 
we can rejoice in how God has empowered even our membership to serve one another. Last Sunday night was particularly special to me because I got to watch as other people who have a desire and an ability and are working and growing in that just like I am, teach the word of God last Sunday night. That was a joy to my heart to see Judson and Robert and myself all teach the word to represent that it's not just one person who's gifted to teach. And of course, there are ladies in our church who also teach. Of course, they teach the children rather than the men because we want to be in, in honor and respecting what the word of God says there. But we can rejoice that God has blessed us with other people who have the desire to teach the Bible. Church, we ought to rejoice in that. I hope you did. I, I hope you rejoice with those who taught and who teach the word. You ought to. Paul did. He was thankful for that. I'm thankful that our church particularly is blessed with a lot of people who are gifted and are willing and are more than ready to serve behind the scenes. That is a spiritual gift. We have people in our church that evidence those often forgotten gifts that Paul will talk about later on in the letter. We have people in our church who God has gifted to be givers and helpers in the ministry. And whatever gift you and I have, we have to remember that God has given us that gift to edify the church. Look at verse um, number seven. He has given us that gift to edify the church as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Ephesians 4 says about this. It says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But beware, the temptation will be as you serve this church to forget that it isn't Christ who's empowering you to serve one another. But we have a partner in this ministry and our partner is the all-powerful son of God and it's for that third thing for which we can be thankful that Paul expresses gratitude here that Christ is preserving us until the end. We can be thankful that Christ is preserving us until the end. In verses eight through nine, in the first part of verse number nine, Paul directs his attention to Christ's preservation of the saints, who shall confirm you, verse number eight, unto the end, that ye may be blameless, and here's the end again, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. God is faithful. That's pointing back to his preservation. And I think verse number eight, as he's writing this to Corinthians, he reminds them that they will be blameless, not today. They will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, senior saints, seasoned saints, godly saints, none of y'all, and myself included, are blameless yet. We've got a ways to go. And I think Paul's intentional in reminding the church of that because I think there were some people in the church who thought they were farther ahead spiritually than they actually were. None of us are blameless yet. And Paul points them 
to that day that they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and their salvation will be finalized and he recognizes that the only reason Christians can stand before God on that day blameless is because the Savior preserved them all along the way. In our study of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to often point our minds to the end. I'll give you a couple of examples. In chapter 3, through verse 13, he reminds us of the end when he says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. I love chapter 9, verses 24 through 25, as Paul points us to the end once again when he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Chapter 11, verse 32 reminds us, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. He says, you better rejoice when you're being chastened by God because if you're not being chastened by God, that means the day will come, you will stand with the world in judgment and be condemned then. And then chapter 15, the famous passage on the resurrection says, behold, I show you a mystery in verses 51 through 52. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Why does Paul point us to the end so much? Why does he remind us of the judgment at the end? And why does he, in this moment, thank God for the grace that Christ preserves us until the end? Because of this. Our desire to persevere until the end is one way Christ assures us that he will preserve us until the end. This is the dynamic of the New Testament. That the New Testament never promises salvation just simply because you uttered a prayer. That the fundamental mark of a true believer in Christ is that they persevere until the end. And it is that persevering grace that Paul looked out on the Corinthian congregation that welled up in gratitude in his heart because he said, I can see that Christ is preserving you. And that assures me that the day will come when you will not stand condemned with the world. You will be preserved blameless in his sight. Elderly Christians... Recognize that the only reason you have preserved thus far is because of the grace of Christ in you. It is not because you have more faith. It is not because you are better than those who've fallen off the trail. You are here only but by the grace of God. And friend, you will only make it until the end by the grace of Christ. Church, we can look at the wonderful group of aged saints that we have in our church and thank God that he has preserved them until the end. I'm thankful that there are people in our church who decades ago were serving faithfully, giving faithfully, attending faithfully, who still serve faithfully, give faithfully, attend faithfully, and all the rest. That shows me Christ is preserving them until the end. And we pray God will continue to preserve those who've trusted and followed him thus far and lead them safely home. 
But though our day of appearing and fellowship with Christ is in the future, Paul gives one more means of thankfulness and reminds us that Christ is still calling us to fellowship with him now. And this is the last thing. The last evidence of Christ's work in an imperfect church is that Christ is calling us into fellowship with him. Look at verse nine. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, imperfect churches have fellowship problems. Did you know churches that have fellowship in their name have fellowship problems? They do. And chapters one through four are going to address some of these fellowship problems. And we're gonna start head on next week. Buckle up. I think I called it God's solution for a splintering church. That's next week's message. Because in chapters one through four, four chapters, buckle up. It is all about their division as a church. This is a church that is not quite split, but it is splintering. There are groups that you may not see. They're not having picket signs or buttons or bumper stickers, but they were splintering. There was division in the church, and Paul is going to address those fellowship problems. Chapters 8 through 11 are also going to address fellowship with problems, because in chapters 8 through 11, listen up here, Paul is going to remind them that their fellowship with Christ means that they should no longer fellowship with demons by eating at the temple where meat is offered to idols. So once again in this letter, he's going to remind them that they are called into fellowship with Christ. And if they are fellowshipping with Christ, they should reverence that fellowship with Christ when they dine with him during communion. And then chapters 12 through 14 are also going to address these fellowship problems. Because their fellowship as a body was splintered because everyone was more focused on their gifts and not the betterment of the whole. And Paul is going to remind them in chapters 12 through 14 that they should conduct themselves in a way that remembers that they are all contributing to the betterment of the whole with their individual gifts. I, for one, and I know some of you have, been concerned sometimes about fellowship problems in the church. Assimilation of new people, different groups of different backgrounds melding together. But our greatest assurance as a church that any fellowship problems that are existing or will pop up, because by the way, problems always continue to happen in imperfect churches. Our greatest assurance that God will work out these fellowship problems that pop up in churches is that all of us are called to a common fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse nine. He says, you are called to fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And I'll talk about this more next week because in verse number 13, he lays out the case that the church should not be divided because Christ is not divided. And much as many of you have maybe been explained the love triangle of marriage, now don't take that, that term too weirdly. With God at the top and the husband, the spouse at the bottom points the triangle and as the husband 
the husband and his wife move towards God, their fellowship gets closer, and the same is true at the church. We have a common fellowship with God's son, Jesus Christ. And as he is calling us into fellowship with him, what happens? He begins to resolve the fellowship problems that exist between the church people. And Paul, though he looked at all these problems, and he worried because there's this group that is not in agreement with this group, the church was divided because not only the personalities of people that they loved and followed as leaders, but they were divided about how to address certain issues in the church. Paul looked at both groups, or sometimes four groups, and was confident that they would come together because Christ himself was beckoning them to himself with the call of fellowship. We can be thankful that our hope in working out disagreements as Christians is not only the methods of compromise we use to come to agreement. If our only tool to resolve disagreements in the church was, well, we gotta figure out how to come to terms. Well, that's how the world figures out problems, friend. Our greatest hope in resolving disagreements is that I'm called to fellowship with Jesus, you're called to fellowship with Jesus, and if we're both pressing into Jesus, we're both gonna get closer together. That is a great hope when it comes to fellowship issues in the church. We have a common fellowship with Christ. It's not just compromise that'll draw a church together. It's not just resolving things that'll draw a church together. It is their pursuit of Christ. Paul is thankful for because he knows that if these believers truly know Christ and if they are being drawn to him over time, it is that call that will bring the church closer together to have better fellowship, not just with Christ, but with one another. Christ is working even in imperfect churches. And our church is one of those. And if it wasn't, you ruined it when you joined it. But we can be thankful because even in this imperfect church, Christ is working. He is working. He is setting us apart from the world to which we should ask ourselves, does our life reflect the call to be holy that is upon us? Are we doing what we can as members to care for one another that they themselves are being set apart from the world? It is nowhere in the mind of New Testament Christianity to ignore the sins of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ is empowering us to serve one another. I wonder if we are doing that. I wonder if we've recognized fully what God has given us and then we see what God has given us to serve his body and are using that to serve one another. I wonder if you fully recognize, Christian, that what you have to offer this church is a gift by the grace of God. Christ is preserving us to the end. Do you look around this church and see some Christians who are preserving themselves by Christ's grace unto the end? Thank God for that. Thank God for that. There are too many churches in our land that have no old people in them. And I'm not pointing any fingers, okay, who the old people are. I'm just saying it's a problem when churches aren't multi-generational. And that goes both ways. 
It's a problem when there's no young people. It's a problem when there's no old people. Because us young people need to see people preserving until the end. Christian, if you see those in our church, thank God for it. Thank God that his son Jesus has given them the grace to stick it out. Because I recognize that it takes at least twice the grace to preserve your walk with Christ for 60 years than it does for 30. It takes a lot of grace to get there. And we can be thankful. Number four, we can be thankful that God is calling us to fellowship with him. And it is that call of fellowship that is upon every individual person that will mend the fellowship problems between the body. Christian, focus on your relationship with Christ and watch how it changes your relationship to his church. Christians who are close to Christ are never far from their church. I'll say that again. Christians who are close to Christ are never distant from their church. Our closeness to Christ draws us closer to his people. And here's what we ought to do tonight. Well, we probably ought to do what Paul did. Look at verse number four. He says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. What better way to respond to Paul's prayer of gratitude for Christ's work in his imperfect church than for you and for me to pray and thank God for Christ's work in our imperfect church. Do you think we have enough things to thank him for tonight? Let's do that. Let's spend some time in prayer tonight on our face before God, thanking him for the ways he is working in our church. Let's spend some